Good morning. And I want to start out by just expressing my thanks to all of you and our online class for the care and support that everyone poured out for myself and my family this week, uh, the death of my aunt a week ago. And uh, my mother really appreciated all the the cards and flowers and prayers and emails that that we received. So thank you all very much. And let's go ahead and begin class with prayer. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study. And as we talk about the mission of the church today, we pray that you'll enlighten our minds and see how we can be part of that mission to lighten the world for your return. We pray in your holy name. Amen. And we are doing lesson number nine in the uh, quarterly, The Teachings of Jesus. And the title this week is Our Mission. And as I uh, thought about that, I, I decided to maybe do something just a slightly little different. I went to the computer and I started looking up mission statements of various organizational churches. And so I'm going to read you some mission statements of some different churches, including the Seventh-day Adventist Church here. But the first one is the mission statement of the United Methodist Church. The mission of the church is to make disciples of, of Jesus Christ for the transformation of the world by proclaiming the good news of God's grace and by exemplifying Jesus' command to love God and neighbor, thus seeking the fulfillment of God's reign and realm in the world. I thought that was pretty well said. All right, this is the mission statement of the Southern Baptist Convention. As a convention of churches, our missional vision is to present the gospel of Jesus Christ to every person in the world and to make disciples of all nations. This is the mission statement of the Roman Catholic Church. Having been divinely sent to the nations that she might be the universal sacrament of salvation, the church, in obedience to the command of her founder, and because it is demanded by her own essential universality, strives to preach the gospel to all men. The Lord's missionary mandate is ultimately grounded in the eternal love of the Most Holy Trinity. The church on earth is by her nature missionary, since, according to the plan of the Father, she has her origin, she, yeah, she has her origin, the mission of the Son and the Holy Spirit. The ultimate purpose of mission is none other than to make men share in the communion between the Father and the Son and their spirit of love. And this is the mission statement of the Seventh-day Adventist Church. The mission of the Seventh-day Adventist Church is to make disciples of all people, communicating the everlasting gospel in the context of the three angels' messages of Revelation 14, 6-12, leading men to accept Jesus as the personal Savior and unite with his remnant church, discipling them to serve him as Lord and preparing them for his soon return. Which of the four did you like the best? You don't have to say, but... Did, did you notice differences in them? Did they all sound the same? The first two, somebody said. The first two they liked the best, the Methodists and the Baptists. Or threads flying throughout them, but um, I guess it depends on which Jesus and which God you're presenting to the world as which gospel is going to be presented. Yeah, I, no doubt, no doubt. Obviously, any of those, if you have the wrong God concept, um, you're going to have problems presenting that. Sure, absolutely. Um, some of them, though, I think that God's concept came through in the, in the statement itself. The Methodist and Baptist mission statement were quite closely tied to the Bible mandate, and therefore very general and very acceptable. And I think that's why we felt comfortable with them, because... Very short. And very short, yes. The Roman Catholic version, though, did have a couple areas that I had some concerns about, and I want to share, share those with you. This is the first phrase that I, I had some concerns about, and it said, um, the church sent to the nations that she might be the universal sacrament of salvation. Which sounds to me, maybe I'm misunderstanding, but it sounds to me that one must be a member of this organization in order to experience salvation. Or in other words, salvation is through this particular institutional church. And of course, it has been taught that way for years as a way to coerce church leaders, uh, not church leaders, kings, popes, uh, kings and, and rulers and emperors and stuff. If you don't do what the church says, then the church will damn you to hell. And salvation is through the, the, the very sacraments of the church. Uh, history of burning people at the stake in order to give last rites, in order to save them. So I think there is this idea in their mission statement that they own the rights to save you or not save you. And I had problems with that. The second concern for me was a subtle change in the wording, make disciples. Which in, which in scripture and how it was used in the Methodist, Baptist, and Adventist version actually meant to teach people. And that's how it was used in those three and its, its actual meaning in the Greek in, in 
the Scripture. However, the Catholic version sounds to me, and you tell me if I'm mishearing it, slightly different to me. This is what it says. The ultimate purpose of mission is none other than to make men share in the communion between the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. Instead of make disciples, it's make men share in this relationship, which sounds to me a little coercive. And then when I look at the history of the Inquisition, the Crusades, the burning at the stakes, and the methods used to convert people, um, I'm wondering if I'm maybe hearing it the way it's really intended, this, this coercive port of making people. So I had concerns with the mission statement on those two areas. The Seventh-day Adventist mission statement, any concerns about it at all? The three angels' message is good, but if someone just reads it out of the Bible... Out of the context, just by itself. Yes, and it sounds like fear God, his wrath is coming down, all that. So it could be presented in a way that misrepresents God very easily. I, I agree with you, yes. I think there's some subtle suggestion that when they use the term remnant church, that the SDAs, it's just understood that we're the remnant church. Okay, I, did you want to join us? I had some sensitivity along that well. I thought there was a lot of good things. Let's, let's focus on the good things, then we'll go with the concerns. SDAism before you understand... Say that again? You have to kind of understand the SDA philosophy and mentality before you understand the statement. So many good things in the statement, like make disciples is used in the scripture way to teach people, not to coerce people. I thought that was, was well done. Emphasize, emphasis on the gospel and the setting of the three angels, uh, which means in the setting of the great controversy. They're trying to say, hey, it's not simply the uh, focus on saving humanity. It's actually a bigger problem, the whole universal war setting. And I thought it was, it was good to, to expand that, which is um, actually more of a Reformation position than, than Luther. As you know, Luther took... Um, uh, 62 books of the New Testament, and, and uh, rather than all 66. I like the leading the men aspect, which implies that we leave people free. We lead. We don't, again, pressure. We, we lead with evidence, hopefully, and truth, and leave them free to make up their mind. The importance of service was emphasized. The expectation of Christ's return was emphasized. A lot of good things in the mission statement were emphasized. The only phrase that I wondered about was the one that, that Russell wondered about, which was, and here's the statement, the mission is to accept Jesus as personal Savior and unite with his remnant church. And unite with his remnant church. Are these two separate things? Or are they seen as one and the same? That when you accept Jesus, you are part of the remnant in the universal sense? Or that when you become part of the Adventist institution, you've accepted Jesus and you're part of the remnant? See, I'm okay if they have the if they have the meaning when you accept Jesus and this larger respect of God's character, and you want to, and you've been reborn in heart, then you are part of God's true remnant people, whoever those people are in the world. I think that's very true. But it's unclear. Are they meaning that? Are they meaning institutional affiliation? Part of Seventh Day Adventism makes you part of the remnant. It was unclear to me. I would like a little clarity there. Do we fulfill our mission, our mission for Christ? And that's what I think, because Christ has put us on mission, not the church, right? Who's put us on mission, Christ or the institution? Christ. Right, so we're on mission for him. So if we fill our mission for Christ, if we lead people to him, they are actually reborn in heart, have the law written on the heart and mind, begin living to serve God and tell people the truth of God's character of love in the setting of the great controversy and the eminent return of Christ, but not join the SDA organization. Have we fulfilled mission, or are we yet not fulfilled mission? Yeah. Yeah. Yes. See, I, I, think, I think that some would see it either way. Some would say, well, there's still one step to go. Others would say, no, no. The Holy Spirit determines what organization that, that he wants them to work in. So I thought I might say today why, why I'm a Seventh-day Adventist. Why am I a Seventh-day Adventist? First, because I don't believe that one has to belong to any particular organization to be saved. You can be, you, there are people of God in all organizations, so it's not organizational. That's one of the reasons why, because officially that's what this church believes. You don't have to belong to any organization to be saved. So that's one of the reasons. But I believe that the organizations we have in the world are the remnants of progressive steps in advancing truth. You know, as we've said before, God is infinite and we're finite. And the gap between him and us is an infinite gap, and we're always progressing toward him. And after the New Testament church, Paul uh, wrote that, uh, that Satan was going to counterattack the church 
called it the man of sin would arise, the man of perdition, and would set himself up in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. That temple that he set himself up in was not the Jewish temple that was gone off the earth. He didn't ride up into heaven and throw God off his throne in heaven and start reigning the universe. So the only other temple left that he set himself up in was the spirit temple, the temple of the human hearts and minds to be to reign as if he was God. And he did this with the infection of imperial Romanism, this idea that God is a dictator like Rome, like a Roman emperor. And, and the world began to worship God as a dictator. He's got a bunch of rules, and if you don't keep his rules, he's going to punish, and he's going to, going to uh, you know, kill and so forth. And the world sank into an age of darkness when they began worshiping God in this way. That's what happened. But the Bible also prophesied that there would be a cleansing of this temple that would come. A cleansing of this temple. And culminating in a final group of people who take a clear picture of God's character to the world to prepare for his return. The groundwork for this cleansing began in the 1400s with John Huss, who was a Czechoslovakian who rejected the indulgences taught by the church and taught salvation by grace through faith alone. He was summoned by the Catholic Church to attend the Council of Constance, where he was found a heretic and burned at the stake in 1415. But from his teachings was founded the Hussites, later becoming the Moravian Church, which is the first Protestant church, the Moravian Church. Many think it's Lutherans. No, it's Moravians, about 100 years before Luther. As this group organized, they received ordination through the Waldensians in 1467. And the groundwork for this cleansing continued with Luther, who in 1517 wrote his you know, famous 90 thesis and tacked to the wall there, and who rejected the sacraments, the indulgences, the relics, and also proclaimed salvation by grace through faith alone. But he could only take the gospel cleansing so far because Luther rejected four books of the Bible. He rejected Revelation, which is one of the clearest places we get the war in heaven. There was war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon. His dragon angels fought back. He rejected Revelation. He also rejected the book of Hebrews. In the book of Hebrews, we also have a heavenly picture. We have a heavenly high priest working in the heavenly sanctuary, and so he's rejected this larger view. He also rejected the book of Jude. In the book of Jude, we have the angels which were condemned and sent down, and, and so we, and he rejected the book of James. So he rejected to a great degree the, 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 uh, the inspired record that would have expanded his view to a larger context of a universal war uh, that goes beyond just our salvation. So Luther, no question, a man of God, a man moving forward, moving out of darkness to light, but he could only take it so far. After Luther, other reformers carried it forward. Calvin defended the Reformation in, in Switzerland. There's a big battle in Switzerland where the Catholic Church came in and tried to shut down the Reformation, and Calvin came along and defended the, the, the uh, reformers' viewpoints. John Smith, uh, and that was in the 1540s, John Smith in 1609 brought biblical baptism by immersion to Christianity in the Netherlands, and that spread throughout much of Christendom. John Wesley in the 1700s argued against Calvinism and predestination, and instead a personal choice in our relation with God, which leads to an actual heart transformation, living a life of love in God for God and others. As we read in the Methodist statement earlier, they very much emphasized loving God and loving others and bringing this to the world. 1735, Wesley traveled to Savannah, Georgia. I don't know if y'all knew that. And uh, during the trip, there's a storm that came up. And remember, remember how they traveled back then? It wasn't uh, Delta or United Airlines. It was a sailing ship. It was a uh, small ships. And uh, he was on a sailing ship, and a terrible storm came up, so strong that it actually broke the main mast on the ship. And if you've ever been at sea in a storm, that had to be terrifying. And he was terrified along with most of the other people, but there was a, a small group of Moravian Christians, the first Protestant group, who actually sat around singing hymns and had a sense of peace about them. And it deeply moved Wesley that they had a spiritual experience he had not yet experienced. And so when he returned to England, he studied with the Moravians for several years. And then in 1739, he founded the Methodist Society. William Miller, William Miller Baptist preacher, uh, in the 1830s, began preaching uh, the fulfillment of Bible prophecy and the cleansing of the sanctuary, erroneously interpreting the sanctuary to be earth and thus predicting the return of Christ in 1844, leading to the great, great disappointment. And then out of that movement, Ellen White and others um, from the Seventh-day Baptists discovered the Seventh-day Sabbath, also embraced the Reformation teachings of Luther and Wesley, 
in the aftermath of the Great Disappointment, discovered the sanctuary to be cleansed was um, not the physical building um, in, in Jerusalem, but was a building built and constructed by God and began to see a connection between God's Christ's work in heaven and Christ's work in the spirit temple to cleanse and heal the hearts and minds of the people, preparing a people to meet Jesus. And this message puts the truth about God and the setting of the great controversy at the center. We war, as Paul said in 2 Corinthians 10, against everything that sets itself up against the knowledge of God and take captive every thought. It's not just an earthly war. Ellen White, as you know, was raised Methodist and came to value the larger perspective, which led to a realization of a controversy over God's character and led to insights like this one out of the book of Education. The Bible is its own expositor. Scripture is to be compared with Scripture. The student should learn to view the Word as a whole, to see the relation of its parts. He should gain a knowledge of its grand central theme, of God's original purpose for the world, of the rise of the great controversy, and of the work of redemption. He should understand the nature of the two principles that are contending for supremacy and should learn to trace their workings through the records of history and prophecy to the great consummation. He should see how this controversy enters into every phase of human experience and how in every act of life he himself reveals the one or the other, the two antagonistic motives, and how whether he will or not, he is even now deciding upon which side of the controversy he will be found. So as I review this history for you, it's the foundation on why am I Seventh-day Adventist, Because I believe one must be a member uh, of this organization to find salvation? No. But because I see this organization having within it the broadest, deepest, widest, clearest, most reasonable understanding of reality of God, his design for life, the war which began in heaven, the actual understanding of the nature of sin and what sin does to God's creation, the purpose of the creation and its origin in, in, in Eden and of humanity. What actually went wrong in Adam and Eve when they sinned, God's actions and purposes through human history, the purpose of the incarnation, to dispel the lies, to destroy sin, death, the devil, to restore mankind back to perfection, understanding of the two antagonistic forces at work in the hearts of men, the culmination of the events on earth, the purpose of God's people on earth, and ultimately the elimination of sin and restoration of righteousness. I don't know any other organization that I'm aware of that has such a complete harmonious understanding of these issues. But yet this organization is also infected with false ideas. Even though everything I just said is true, this organization is also in the middle of the same war. And there are false ideas in this organization for which we as a ministry in love seek to remedy by presenting the truth that can set minds free from the false ideas that are, that are actually deeply embedded in this organization as well. Any thoughts or comments about that? That the infection is universal. That no organization is spared. That's right. That's right. That's why we're not saved by organizational affiliation. We're saved by an affiliation and a unity with Jesus Christ. But the organization can assist in expanding our insight, our awareness, or it can darken our minds. Yes, Linda. Well, last week I brought relatives who, had, who were visiting and had never been here before. And their impression was, when you were talking about the rules versus, you know, uh, which rules are we talking about, which laws, that uh, the Sabbath was not important as far as salvation goes. And when you're talking to an audience of Adventists, when you start, put it, the way you put things is really important because um, though you're trying to say, I think that you can't be saved by keeping the Sabbath as witnessed by the people who crucified Jesus going to keep the Sabbath, when you're talking to a bunch of Adventists who are already forewarned that at the end, the Sabbath will be a crucial issue and there'll be an ecumenical movement that will want everybody to try to combine on on shared belief basis uh, without the Sabbath, that is a real concern for Adventists who hear what you're saying, is are you headed in that direction? So that's a good point, and maybe we should expand on that for a moment. <clears throat> and we talked in here, on, I, in the last several weeks, we talked about the, the different levels of moral development, how we understand these things from different developmental stages. When we look at the Sabbath, do we look at the Sabbath as, you know, stage one, um, punishment and reward? Do it. If you don't do it, you'll get punished. Or do we look at it at, at stage two, do it because it's a good exchange. We do it and keep the Sabbath, we get a reward. We will, uh, you know, 
uh, get that benefit of eternal life? Do we do it because of a consensus that, well, the group of us believe that it's the right thing to do and therefore we do it? Do we do it because of level four, the law? The law says and God has a law and we must keep the law. And if we don't keep the law, then, then God is required by his law that he must punish those who don't keep the law. And this is going to be a test of those law keepers and those law breakers. Do we do it at level five because somehow it's somehow connected to loving God and loving people? Do we do it at level six because at level six, um, we ha- we understand a principle of God's design, and the Sabbath is integral to that principle. Do we do it at level seven? Because not only understanding the principle, we understand the purpose. And the purpose that we intelligently cooperate with in demonstrating something that's much more marvelous than just uh, avoiding work on one day out of seven, on the right day out of seven, as the Jews did. And I'm going to suggest to you that, yes, there's a Sabbath that's integral, but if if uh, if we're looking at it at level four and below, we end up being very much like the slave mentality. And we end up looking at this very um, behavioralistically, that it's, it's going to be a test of which, which thing we actually do. Therefore, we could kill Christ. And as long as we get him down by sunset and don't do any work on Sabbath, we are still Sabbath keepers and we have God's seal. And this is how many people look at this. And they're completely wrong. I, I, the way I look at this is, if you read the scripture, it talks about the Sabbath being a sign of the seal of God. And the, and the Sunday is used in the, in, in the Adventist um, eschatology as a mark. And when you think of signs and marks, if somebody wears a cross around their neck on a chain, are they wearing Jesus? Are they wearing a sign or a symbol that symbolizes them? If somebody has a pentagram or a goat's head, is that a sign or a mark or a symbol of something else? Yes, it's often used to represent Satan. Okay? It doesn't have to, but it often is used that way. Signs and marks are not reality. The Sabbath is a sign of something. But in and of itself, it's not the reality. Those who understand the sign will incorporate the reality into their life. And what is the reality that the Sabbath is a sign of? God's love. God's character. You see, day one through six, we learn that God has power. Day one through six of creation week. God uses power to make. God uses power to create. We understand God has power. What do we understand on day seven? In the context, what's happening? This this creation of planet Earth is happening after this war has already broken out in heaven. After Lucifer is alleging God is a power monger. After Lucifer is alleging God can't be trusted. The angels in heaven are confused. A third of the angels are already siding up with Lucifer. There's factions being split in God's universe. And, And how does God respond? Does God respond by pulling out his, you know, panzer division? His M1A1 tanks? His lightning bolts? No. What's he do? Gives you time for Stay, first, he starts day one, let us, let, let there be light. Let the firmament come forth. And he starts showing who he is by creating a microcosm of the universe. Let us make man in our image. And as the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit come into unity and create beings in their image, now we have this new creation uh, built, designed, constructed in the image of God who can come together in the unity of love and make beings in their image. And we'll grant them, as far as a created being can, godly powers. What powers? Powers of procreation, powers of dominion and rulership. Let them have dominion over the earth. Let them rule it. And I think we have a very minimalistic idea of the dominion that Adam and Eve had prior to the fall. I think they could do things that were incredible with their minds. They had power over nature. They could influence weather. They could move things. uh, Very godly powers, I believe, they had on this planet in dominion here. And then the relationship with the animals that they had. Look at that relationship. There was no violent animals. There was no lions that attacked. There was none of this stuff. They had a communion and relationship. But we also learned lessons in this. What are the lessons we learned? Why didn't when Adam and Eve were planning, whatever it is they're planning, on the next change in their garden that they didn't call the elephant or the giraffe over and consult with them before they did it? Because Adam and Eve are self-centered and they're exclusionary and they don't want to share with these other uh, animals. Or is it because these other animals couldn't enter into the conversation on the level of Adam and Eve. And thus we learn when God is in heaven and the son who left infinity and comes out to interact with his creation in the form of the archangel Michael, when he goes back into infinity and talks with his father, Lucifer is left out here. And Lucifer says, it's not fair. I don't get to go into these councils. He's exclusionary, self-centered. Why doesn't he get to go into these councils? For the same reason the giraffe and the elephant don't get in. Not because they're exclusionary, because even as brilliant as Lucifer was, what can he offer on the level of divinity and infinity? 
There's nothing. He couldn't even comprehend the conversation. But he doesn't understand this at this point. Okay, so we see these lessons given. And after God has given this lesson and the, and the power, you understand the power that had to be displayed, we take a couple of ounces of matter and we turn that matter back into energy on earth. And it's a nuclear explosion. Just a couple of ounces of, of grams of matter. How much energy? How much energy is there contained in the whole planet? How much energy in our sun and our solar system? Incredible amounts of power were displayed. And I can imagine Lucifer telling the angels who are watching to see, guys, I told you. I never said he didn't have power. I told, I told you you couldn't trust him with it. He's trying to intimidate you. He's telling you, look, you better get in line or else I will wipe you out. And see, I just made new intelligent life. I can replace you like this. You better watch out. He's going to get you. And so God in this context says, universe, you've heard the allegations. You've seen the evidences we've given. Now, universe, take 24 hours aside. I rest my case. God rested. He stopped using power. He stepped back. He created a day for freedom to think. What does it say about God that rather than coercing beings to force them to stay loyal, he actually sets them free. So on day seven, the Sabbath reveals God's character. And in the end, the final test will be a test over God's character and law, which the Sabbath symbolizes, which is truth, He presented all week long in love, leaving people free. And thus, in the end, it will come down to those who are Sabbath observers, which are they present truth in love, leave people free, versus those who are beast worshipers, they can neither buy nor sell, save them who have the mark. They're coercive pressure. And and if you look at the origin of the two days for worship, one was created to be a day of rest. It's in its creation inherent in it, built in. The other is arbitrarily declared to be a day of rest. God builds the fabric of the universe, natural law, design law. He built the day. It exists because he created it. Man makes rules that one must obey. Sunday observance is a rule made by man. And so you see, even in the context of the two laws, we come back again. Do we worship a God who is the designer, the builder, him who made the heavens and the earth? Or do we worship a rule made by man and a God who imposes that rule? And this is the real divide. And so can you worship any day of the week and be God's enemy? Yes. Or God's friend? Yes. You see, those who are operating at level four below would say, and I can create scenarios. Scenario where you were shipwrecked and unconscious for three days and woke up and you have no idea how long you've been unconscious and what day of the week it is and you have no calendar and whatever, whatever, whatever. What day are you going to worship on? Oh, if you don't get the right day, you better hope that an angel comes tell you which day Sabbath is because you're worshiping on Thursday each week and you think that's the Sabbath. You, you're going to be, you're going to be punished for that. It's silliness. God is not that way. But an arbitrary system of rules, that is that way. Don't you think, too, I mean, going back to these different stages and how you talked about, I mean, I mean, the child who obeys because, you know, they do it so they're not punished, I mean, to them it's not, it's not that it's wrong, it's just they just don't have that, that further insight, that maturity, that, that greater um, view of the bigger picture, and I think a lot of, a lot of us as human beings, we get stuck in these different developmental phases. I mean, I think that certainly Ellen White and a lot of you know the leaders and in their times, they they had a lot more insight. And, and but then the people who came after them, they didn't necessarily grow into those phases. I think we deal with that in our lives all the time. That they're and it's not that they're wrong; they just haven't progressed to that next phase. And and sometimes. I mean, as human beings, we so want people to see it our way. You know what I mean? We, we, but we, we may not have, you know, we're not at that level five or six or whatever. So we, we want them, you know, we want to share. We want to tell them the truth, but we don't see the whole picture. We only see that. Well, let, let me expand a little farther on this because I think you're bringing a great point. Because of what you just said, the reality that's why you see so many different metaphors and ways God speaks to people. Because God stoops to speak a language of the person. What good would it do if God came to speak to us? Jesus himself came to us today, and he was teaching here physically, speaking Aramaic. How, how, how would that help you? There would, there would be some in the audience. Uh... I doubt it. I doubt any of them could understand spoken Aramaic. 
that Jesus spoke 2,000 years ago. What do you think? Anybody going to understand and comprehend that? 2,000-year-old? We couldn't understand King James, the English spoken today. If somebody from the, the 1500s came here today and started speaking the English they spoke then, we would have a difficult time comprehending and tracking it. Okay? So the point I'm making is God always reaches down and speaks a language that the people he's trying to communicate can understand. So just as a parent speaks differently to their two-year-old or three-year-old or four-year-old to explain things when the child says, why, mommy? Why, daddy? There's an explanation you give. But that may not be the same explanation you, explanation you give to a graduate student. You might give it completely different. Both are correct in their context and level of understanding. One is actually much more correct. Now, the problem with the level four and below, as I understand it, is level four and below people are not trustworthy. They can't be trusted. Every level four, every, if you look at the motives of level four and below, it, all of them require oversight and supervision. Someone to watch out and police breaches, someone to enforce the law, someone to enforce punishment, someone to give reward. Some, there's all this, if there's not an external source of authority to either punish or reward, then there'll be chaos and there'll be breakdown in social order and level four and below. Level five and above, however, when you begin to actually love others more than self, then you don't need the external. It's actually being written in the heart. This is what the, the Bible is leading people to. We start as these infantile children, but we are to grow up into maturity and become uh, those individuals with the laws written on the heart. And that law is not a system of rules. It's a system. It's a methodology of understanding reality that we cooperate and operate within it. And only in a universe where everybody has come to love God and others more than self, and that's what we operate from, is it safe to live. We don't need police on every corner. Heaven will not be safe because God has a, a, a angel with a flaming sword at every corner and he's got the best surveillance system in the universe to watch everything you do and even has the ability to know your thoughts before you think them so he can actually do like that movie, um, was it uh, Minority Report, where he can know you're going to commit a crime before you do it and just zap you before you do it, say, so the universe will always be safe. It's not going to be that way. And if you look at level four and below, that's the way that it has to be. And that's why Christ is waiting to return. And so you look at history, God is speaking in all these different ways. The problem is some people want to stay as children. And Paul dealt with that in Corinthians. He told them, you guys are still on milk. What is wrong with you people? In Hebrews, he writes, Hebrews 5 and 6, those who are on spiritual, you ought to be on meat by now, but you're still on milk. Those on milk are not acquainted with righteousness. Think that through. That's his words. Not acquainted with righteousness. Because righteousness is being renewed in the heart where the law is written in the heart. You've advanced beyond the rules. And he actually gives some examples. And in, 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 uh, if you keep reading at the end of chapter 5 and early 6, he says, so we don't lay again the elementary teachings, elementary, it's milk, of repentance from acts that lead to death. So what's the focus there? Behavior. Behavior. That's the elementary stuff, the do's and the don'ts, the Ten Commandments even. This is all basic child stuff. And if you're doing that level and operating on that level and evangelizing on that level, you're not acquainted with righteousness, according to Paul. You're not safe. You're not renewed. You don't love God and others. You wouldn't sacrifice self for another person. You might do it in order so you won't get punished. But if you ever get the idea that God wouldn't punish you, then, wow, chaos breaks loose. Because you haven't grown up. Yes? Uh, I do struggle a little bit with the idea that level four and below or maybe not level that they need to be to understand God. And, I mean, you know, I look at I look at my parents who were very much about the rules and about the legalistic um, keeping of those rules and, and not sure that they were above a level four. However, I know that they were good, genuine Christians, and I do believe that despite the fact they may not have been above, above a level four, that God understands and loves them and says, okay, yes, when you get to heaven... You may think there's going to be a flaming angel sword uh, on every corner, but I'm going to show you how great I am. And that's not really the Thank you for this clarification. If, if, if it, my comments sounded like if you're level four below, you're not going to be in heaven, then, then that's not what I meant to say. So thank you for that clarification. Because the Bible tells us in heaven that we will grow up like calves in a stall. They'll be growing up to do in heaven. I don't think that's just physical growing up. I think there's a lot of mental, spiritual, cognitive growing up that we'll be doing as well. So I think there'll be many of those children who genuinely trust. I think Thief on the Cross. Thief on the Cross is a good example. I think he's a child, spiritual child. But he's going to grow up in heaven. Because why his heart attitude is he wants to grow up, he just hasn't understood it yet. And there are many young children who have honest hearts and they're willing to grow as soon as they're capable of comprehending and somebody can explain it in a way they can understand. They're going to embrace it. And so their hearts are honest. They're lovers of truth and heart. 
The ones who won't be there, though, are the ones who are not lovers of the truth. They won't accept truth. They'll reject truth as it, as it, as it presents to them. You follow me? It'll be kind of like those, um, <laughs> I heard it presented one time. You know, when we get to heaven, we have to be prepared for, you know, a lot of us have this idea. We maybe have some friends that see it different than us, maybe your parents. And you say, I can't wait to get to heaven. We're going to go to Jesus and say, Jesus, you know, my parents taught this and I taught that. And, uh, and which one of us is right? And we have to be ready for Jesus to say, well, the truth is, um, Neither one of you were. <laughs> and then you're in trouble if you have to look. Now, now hold on, Lord. I, 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 I've got to correct you on that. <laughs> See? Then you're in trouble. <laughs> okay? So, um, no, I appreciate that very much. But I think at this time in Earth's history, preparing a people to be able to take that chariot ride that Elijah took or walk like Enoch did. And that's what we're really talking about. God is wanting a people who can walk right into heaven. They know him. They're like him. We can see him face to face. And those people have to grow up. And that's what we're really wanting. A, a group of people on earth who have grown up into true understanding of God and his methods. Yes. Now, before looking at the uh, concept of the Sabbath, where you're talking about the eye rest and being able to give the, the power of reflection and choice, and also, though, it's not I rest and stand back and leave you to it, it's, and I'm here, and my heart is a heart full of, it is love, and the chance to, to build relationship with God, not just have the power of choice, that, that he is... Uh, Are you suggesting that all, the, all that relationship choice I'm here with isn't true for the other six days? It's true for all the days, but in our wonderful human way, if we uh, took our to-do list and didn't have that built-in pause for Sabbath, uh, there's a chance we wouldn't slow down. And, and if you take your to-do list and pause it on Sunday, you can't have what you just described on Sunday? No, but you... <laughs> God wouldn't come and be there special. You couldn't have that relationship with him. You couldn't have closer love for him and appreciate I'm saying this in a the, 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 uh, I agree with you. You can get that on Sabbath, but a lot of the arguments that people have argued for Sabbath are true. For any day of the week, you choose to do those things. It says in Eden that he came in, on the cool of each day and spent time with them pur- purposely. And one of the classic arguments I hear about the Sabbath is this di- day that God comes and spends special with us. We well, came and spent personal time with him every day of the week. So I think, I think there's something even grander than that. And that is the setting of the controversy, and that's where we can really make sense of these things. Yes? I think that Sabbath towards the end of time is like the shaking, the shaking time. So it's, I, I think I read somewhere where there's a lot of different religions that will come to the Sabbath keeping when they have the Sunday law. Let me reset this. Let me reset this in my view. The central issue in the war is the nature and character of God, Amen. not the Sabbath. If you put the Sabbath in the center, you put God out of the center. So when you explain the Sabbath, it's okay as long as you're explaining it about how God is in the center and what it says about God. But if we remove it and make it a standalone doctrinal test that we can prove from Scripture, this is the, the Sabbath of the Bible, and we disconnect it from what it says about God and we stand it up on its own, then we've made an arbitrary dictator and you can worship God of the Sabbath Excuse me, you can kill the God of the Sabbath while you go home to keep the day that he says is holy. And so I don't dis- disagree that Sabbath isn't important, but it is not central. The central issue, in my view, is God himself. He's always central. Yes. Uh, go ahead, Epi. What I think what she's saying, and maybe I'm thinking, is that, sure, the character of God is the central thing, but at the end of days, at the end of time, the Sabbath becomes more prominent. What the Sabbath symbolizes becomes more prominent. There will be a war between two opposing methodologies. There will be the methodology of truth, love, and freedom, and a methodology of coercion, deceit, and intimidation. This is the methodologies. And you look at what Revelation is about the beast. They can neither buy nor sell, save them. who They use coercive pressure. And I'm going to suggest to you, let's just say that the Seventh-day Adventists convert America. And 98% of all Americans become Seventh-day Adventists. And so we then pass laws in this country that you must shut your businesses down from sunset Friday to sunset Saturday. And if you don't, you're going to get punished by the state. You'll be imprisoned. Your properties will be taken from you. Are we working in God's camp or against God? This is Mark of the Beast. It will be Mark of the Beast on that day if we did that. Okay? No different than if we were to take a different doctrine. Baptism. 
Sprinkling or immersion? Well, we are going to prove it's baptism by immersion from Scripture, and then we're going to pass a law. Everybody must be baptized by immersion. We're going to force you down. We're going to dunk you against your will because we're going to baptize you. Okay? Now, everybody agrees, all of us agree in here, that this is the right way to do it. But if we use that method, are we on God's side or are we opposing him now? So what happens when we're at those lower levels, we actually are operating simply on the behavior itself. Well, we must get people dunked because baptism is important, so we've got to dunk them. Let's dunk them. We forget and we miss the fact that, no, it's the method of God that's really on trial here. Sabbath, it's the right day, and if you don't observe the right day, you're going to be lost. No, it's the method you use in approaching the day, and the day symbolizes the method. This is what it's really about. Is there a difference between that? Yes, there is. But can you worship the right day in such a way that you actually crucify the one who made it. I think history is, this is one of the reasons that we learned the lesson in Israel. Yes. How would you grow from uh, different maturity levels up and up? Since a higher maturity level, operating more relationally, is more difficult to explain to someone who's not as relational. So how would you, how does that develop? Psychology research would suggest that people who, whatever level you're at, you're only able to comprehend the level immediately above yours. You actually can't comprehend two or three or four levels above where you're operating. So you have to progress from one level to the next. And what is it that motivates one to progress from one level to the next? Is when you find yourself in a circumstance for which the current level of operating does not answer. You're, you're frustrated. You're, you're, you're stressed because your current understanding of why this is happening, it doesn't fit with your current operational level. So you struggle for a better explanation and that will move you to the next level. And in that level, then you'll be at peace for a while until a new ex- encounter in life uh, doesn't fit with that operational level and you're looking for a better explanation. And so there's this struggle through maturity to try to understand life in ways that the pieces all fit. And so uh, sometimes it's just life happening. Sometimes we can help people with our preaching and teaching by introducing ideas that cause cognitive dissonance. Cognitive dissonance, where you present an idea which their model can't handle. And if they're open and they're lover of truth, they will honestly go and wrestle with it. I can't explain that. That doesn't make sense to me. I'm going to have to pray. I'm going to wrestle that out. And they will actually search and begin studying and wrestling to find an answer. Those that are not cognitively and spiritually honest will go, you're a heretic. You're, 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 a heretic. you're trying to undermine faith in the Bible and the faith in God and faith in God's law. And we, we have our law, and our law says this. Who are you to come and challenge what we've taught for 300 years or 3,000 years or however long they told Christ? You see, they had their law and they would not honestly investigate what Christ was teaching them. There are people today the same. We have our rules. We have our system. We know what truth is. You don't, you don't present it the way we do, then you're a heretic. You must be killed. for 500 years. Yes. <laughs> yes. That's right. He was, he was, Russell was suggesting some feedback we got when we presented these ideas that some some other individuals in our community said to us, we can't support you because you're contradicting what has been taught for 500 years. See, they weren't willing to actually wrestle with our ideas. We, it was uncomfortable to them, made them stressed. So if you find ideas that make you stressed, that's okay. Wrestle them out openly and honestly search it for yourself. As I've told everybody repeatedly in this class, I'm never here to tell anybody what to think. I'm here to challenge people to think, to cause some of that cognitive dissonance, to get you kind of off the bubble to, to expand your, your thoughts and perspectives. All right, so mission of the church. I want to share with you a mission uh, statement from what Ellen White said. She said, the mission of the church of Christ is to save perishing sinners. It is to make known the love of God to men and to win them to Christ by the efficacy of that love. Notice where she puts the emphasis. We save through love. The truth for this time must be carried into the dark corners of the earth, and the work may be, uh, and this work may begin at home. The followers of Christ should not live selfish lives. Should not live selfish lives, but imbued with the Spirit of Christ, they should work in harmony with Him. Uh, there are causes for the present coldness and unbelief. The love of the world and the cares of life separate the soul from God. The water of life must be in us, flowing out of us, springing up from the everlasting life. We must work out what God works in. Did you hear that? We must work out what God works in. If the Christian would enjoy the light of life, he must increase his efforts to bring others to the knowledge of this truth. His life must be characterized by exertion and sacrifices to do others good, and then there will be no complaints or lack of enjoyment. Now I'm going to pause there. Did you hear what she said? It's about love, and there must be, and his life must be characterized by exertion and sacrifice to do others good. Then there will be no complaints or lack of enjoyment. Why? 
because it's, this is natural law she's describing here. Natural law. And it's a law that strength comes by exertion. If you want to get physically strong, you've got to exert your muscles. If you choose not to exert them, you will atrophy. If you want to get, if you're a musician and you want to get musically stronger, you will have to practice. If you're an artist and you want your art skills to expand, you will have to, to, to exert yourself. As a writer, my exertion as, as writing, I can tell you my writing has gotten better the more I have done it. it. My neural circuits expand with exertion. If you want to love others and be a lover of people, you have to exert yourself as a giver of God's love to, and sharing with others, and you will then grow. This is a law of how God has designed things. And it's also the law of love. The more you give, the more you will receive. It's not... And some magic thing, well, you're, you give something, God's keeping track, and, and if you've done so many, then you get like uh, so many, then he uh, gives you a gold star, and then you do so many more, you get, a, you get another gold star. And No, it's, it's a natural flow. All love comes from God. And the more you give away, the more is flowing through you, the more you're receiving. The spirit of Christ's self-sacrificing love is the spirit which pervades heaven and is the very essence of its bliss. Those who feel no special pleasure in seeking to be a blessing to others, in working even at, sac- at a sacrifice to do them good, cannot have the spirit of Christ or of heaven. For they have no union with the work of heavenly angels and cannot participate in the bliss that imparts elevated, that imparts elevated joy to them. Elevated joy to them. Come and reason mission statement. I've read all those others. Maybe we should read our mission statement. Russell gave me an eyebrow. Okay. Come and Reason Ministries focuses on making God's methods and principles practical, understandable, and applicable to you here and now. We are dedicated to help you learn to discern, to teach you how to think for yourself, to hone and refine your reasoning powers in order to increase your ability to know the right from the wrong, the healthy from the unhealthy, and to working with God to help bring truth, love, and healing to all who are seeking to know and understand their Creator. All right, now we're at our memory text for today. <laughs> In this gospel, the kingdom will preach to the world, witness to all nations, the end will come. I'm going to go through this really quick. What gospel? What gospel? What good news? Good news about what? The good news about God, his character, methods of love. Uh, the kingdom is the kingdom of love, which is the kingdom of giving, the kingdom of truth, the kingdom of beneficence, the kingdom of openness, the kingdom of freedom. This is how it functions. It functions naturally. Uh, to witness. To witness what? What are we to witness about? The witness about these very principles and the way we live and carry out. And to what end? To the end of selfishness, lies, pain, suffering, and death. That's what we're witnessing for. To the end of all that. So it's, I know it's maybe have a different application, but I like that one. Um, boy, we're, I, there's so much in the notes. I'm just having. I'm jumping around now. I don't really jump, but I'm jumping. So. Can I mention a little text that seems mission-like? Proverbs 24, verse 11. Rescue those being led away to death. Hold back those staggered towards slaughter. Yes. I think one of our biggest things is lack of compassion. I think the angels and God are astounded at how little compassion we have towards other people. And, oh, it's their business. I hope they find the malls find the way to the flame some way or another. You know, and... We don't really view people as staggering towards slaughter and our role in preventing that if possible. You're exactly right. And I'm going to share something with you in a moment that I think might help clarify that for us. This is out of Desire of Ages 307. It says, You are lights of the world. The Jews thought, and this is, by the way, Sunday's lesson, light of the world. The Jews thought to combine the benefits of salvation to their own nation, but Christ showed them that salvation is like sunshine. It belongs to the whole world. The religion of the Bible is not to be confined between the covers of a book nor within the walls of a church. It is, not, it is not to be brought out occasionally for our own benefit and then to be carefully laid aside again. It is to sanctify the daily life, to manifest itself in every business transaction and in all our social relations. True character is not shaped from without and put on. It radiates from within. If we wish to direct others to the path of righteousness, the principles of righteousness must be enshrined in our own hearts. Our profession of faith may proclaim the theory of religion, but it is not our, but it is our practical piety that holds forth the word of truth, the consistent life, the holy conversation, the unswerving integrity, the act of benevolent spirit, the godly example. These are the mediums through which light is conveyed to the world. 
living the light. You mean religion of the Bible isn't in getting people baptized in the right way, worshiping on the right day, eating the right foods, knowing the right beasts of Revelation, and what the right nations are that represents those horns? It's not what it's about? Hmm. The indwelling of this, this is Christ's object lessons 419. The indwelling of the Spirit will be shown by the outflowing of heavenly love. How do you know if the Spirit's there? Because they're living the right way, doing the right deeds, as far as worshiping on the right day, eating the right foods. Look at the Jews. They had the right day, the right diet, the right sacrifices, the right tithe, the right, they tithed on their, their herbs out of their garden. How many of you tithe on, their, tithe on the herbs out of your garden? They did. But did they have love flowing out of their heart? The divine fullness will flow through the consecrated human agent to give forth to others. The religion of Christ means more than the forgiveness of sin. It means taking away our sin and filling the vacuum with the graces of the Holy Spirit. Where Christ reigns in the soul, there is purity, freedom from sin. The acceptance of the Savior brings a glow of perfect peace, perfect love, perfect assurance. The beauty and fragrance of the character of Christ revealed in the life testifies that God has indeed sent his son to the world. You know that, that perfection that you often hear about and many Christians get very concerned about? Do you think that's what it means? Perfect peace, perfect love, perfect acceptance. Not perfect performance. Do you see the difference? It's quite profound. This perfection is an internal perfection of heart, and mind, character of the believer where we love and trust God. And we want and have a heart's desire to, to do things perfectly, but in our human weakness, we often fall short of that. But our motives were to do good. Therefore, it is not evil when we fall short. Not evil when you dribble soup on your new shirt. I'm so glad because I often call my wife when I'm traveling. I'm dribbling soup on my shirt. How do I get this stain out? She says, what is it? Hot or cold water? <laughs> is this evil? No. We make mistakes in innocence. When our hearts are right, we can have that perfect peace. Well, to explain the thief on the cross, a lot of people might have a difficult time with what seems to be no growth at all. So, so Monday's, yes, Monday's lesson, uh, to be witnesses, and I asked the question in the lesson, why is the message about health and health reform effective and even essential to sharing the gospel? And I'm going to run through some of these really quick with you. And we already defined the gospel as the good news about God's character of love, his methods, the way he's designed things to operate. So think about the, the health laws, health message, health healing arts, and then think about the gospel. I'm going to contrast some things with you. See if it helps. And this may go to what Linda was talking about earlier. What laws do the health message operate upon? Natural. <laughs> Natural laws of health. Does this mirror God's moral law? Do you see the direct? Many don't. Many see the laws of health as a natural law. They see God's moral law like a Roman dictator list of rules that he now has to enforce. There is no inherent built-in consequence. They don't understand that when you lie, when you cheat, when you break trust, when you uh, worship other gods, that it's actually transforming you. It's altering your neurobiology. You're being warped. Your character is being damaged. Your, your conscience is being seared. It's actually naturally destroying you. Sin reacts upon the sinner and makes it more easy for him to sin again. This is what's happening. You're being transformed in the process. So those who practice the healing arts, what is their attitude towards the sick? Even the very sick. What's their attitude towards them? Compassion. Non-judgmental. Desire to help. Desire to help. Compassion. Non-judgmental. Desire to help. Wanting to deliver. Wanting to heal. Does this mirror God's attitude towards sinners? What do doctors, nurses do to their non-compliant patients, those who refuse to follow the treatment plan. What do they do to them? Intervene, document. Document, they, they document, they plead, they explain, they educate, they may send others to plead and, and try others to consult with others to get others to come in to help. But at the end of the day, if the person absolutely refuses the remedy, what will the healthcare team do? Let them go. Let them go. Let them go. But under some circumstances, they're not in the right mind, so we tie them down, put tubes in them, and force them to have fluid and food until they can get into their right mind. So when they're in their right mind, that person that then wants to refuse all the treatment, what will we do? Untie them. And then let them die. 
but it seems kind of coercive when they're in that first part where we're maybe sedating them. And no, they no, have. because you misunderstand what's transpiring there. What's transpiring there is we realize the person in the state you described is not capable of making a decision. They're like the demoniac that Christ came across, and they're not in their faculties to make a self-governed choice, and so what we've done to them is we've... We've taken control in order to restore to them their freedom to make decision, and then we let them freely make their decision. So Christ forcibly, if you will, forced the, the demons out of the mind of the demoniac. He commanded them to depart, violating the freedom of the demons to be there. For what purpose? To restore the man to sanity so the, so the, so the, so the individual human being now has the freedom to decide what he's going to do. And so, so in the healing arts, we still practice this, but it's always for the restoration. And as soon as the individual has the capacity for self-decision-making, and we set them free. But we see the God of the Old Testament in somewhat of a more coercive point in time to set the Israelites, let's say, the slaves on the right path. We view, we cannot seem to comprehend that was Jesus as well, but in a different mode uh, presenting himself in what seemed to be more of a coercive way, instant death for you, you know, so on and so forth. No, I disagree. I mean, we don't have time to go into that right now, Linda, but no. I, I, think, I, I agree that some people see it that way. I don't agree that Jesus was being coercive. I do agree that some people see it that way, though. That is something you're, again, you're up against when you're talking with people, because they don't see that they see that God as coercive. And when you say that God allows freedom and they see that, they have a hard time... And and you always you always find that the reason for that is they are not understanding the context properly. They are only understanding a piece. For instance, the what you're describing is again the people on script. God has a script. He has a play. And if you're going to be an actor on stage in His play, you have to follow His script. If you don't want to follow His script, what is? And, and a movie director today, you're on the you've, you're taking the part. You're going to act on the play. You go out there and decide to go off script and just do your own thing. What's the director going to do? Cut. And then you're cut out. Okay. And that's what God was doing. You guys. But you look at the people not on script. He didn't do all this stuff to the people not on script. It was the people on script that you had all these things happen to because they were to act out something. It was just a teaching tool. And so people misunderstand the context. But let me keep going with this. So what causes the pain and suffering for the non-compliant sick person who won't take their medicine? Does this give us insight into the cause of pain and suffering for the sinner? What causes the death of the sick person? Does this give us insight into the death of the wicked in the end? And if you understand God's design law, it absolutely is clarifying. This is why the health message is to be the right arm of the ministry. But if you understand imperial dictator and you're thinking through that dictator rule, then it makes no sense at all. You're very confused at this point. So you're being challenged to, to go home and pro- wrestle and, and uh, look at this. H- how do doctors and nurses respond when the sick one who dies is their own child? Does this give us insight into how God will respond to the eternal death of many of his children? Can the laws of health be changed to meet the sick patient in their sickness? No. Does this give us insight into why God's law cannot be changed to meet the sinner in their sins? If the patient is sick and dying, what needs to change in order for the patient to live? The laws of health, the attitude of the doctor, or the condition of the patient? Does this give us insight into what needs to change in order for the sinner to be saved and the purpose of Christ's mission on earth? Yes, Wendell. Even in health, we often make little rulers, and we have six glasses or eight glasses of water, and you start developing up in two from a natural health to a arbitrary, these are the rules of health, you have to do it this way, otherwise you will be unhealthy. And yes, and, and, and actually we can cause harm. He said oftentimes we make rules. I'll give you one. In Adventism, this caused harm. Ellen White wrote in her day, you should not use drug medications because drug medications are poisons to the system. And she set up a rule. And the drug medications in her day were arsenic, quinine, mercury, laudanum, and these types of things. And she called them poisons. Guess what? They're poisons. Unfortunately, some individuals read the statement, don't understand the context, and then say, ah, anything that you get at the pharmacy and prescribed by the doctor is a poison and you shouldn't take it. Actually, even in her day, there was a gentleman whose son, he and his son were missionaries in the Far East, and the boy had malaria and was dying, and the doctors wanted to give him quinine. 
This was one of the specific ones that was spe- spelled out by Ellen White even as one of the drug medications we shouldn't give. So the boy's father refused to allow the quinine to be given because of the testimonies that said you shouldn't do it. This is a rule. We shouldn't follow, let's follow the rule. And the boy died. He actually got an interview with Ellen White. And as he asked her, he asked her, would I have sinned to give my boy quinine when they knew no other way to do it? And the testimony said, don't do it. She said, of course not. We must do the best that we can with what we have. So there is an example of what you're talking about. Ellen White's operating on principles. And what is the principle? Restoring health with the best, most effective methods we have available to us at that time. And in that particular case, they could have saved the boy's life with quinine or let him die, which is better, to save his life with quinine. But we have a rule, and we, can't, we must apply the rule. And this is what many people, and that's level four and below, thinking. She's operating on level, but she gave the rules because the, the, sometimes the, the, the kids need the rules because they don't know. And do you give a rule for your kid not to smoke? Don't smoke. There's a rule. Why don't you do it? Well, because if you do, I'm going to spank you. But do you want them to grow up to understand there's a principle why you gave that rule? And I'm telling you, a lot, of, a lot of American kids are being confused right now because some of the states in our country are actually legalizing marijuana. And as they're legalizing marijuana, it's no longer illegal. Kids are going, okay, it must not be harmful. No, states can make it legal, but a state can never pass a law to make it healthy. And, and you must differentiate between laws of health, which are design law, design law, laws of health, and State law rules, imperial dictator rules. God is the designer, the creator. We are called to worship him and leave the imperial dictator views behind. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for all that you have done for us. Thank you for this class today, Lord. A lot of stimulating discussion. Thank you for the minds in here that are challenging and asking questions. And I pray your spirit will go to each one and, and, and inspire them to continue to dig and study and to challenge and And let us together sharpen each other and move forward in our understanding of your kingdom. And may we go out and live a life of love that is inspirational to the community around us. May you open avenues for the message to go forward. May our church wake up from its slumber. May you come soon. We pray in your holy name. Amen.